Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Sara Vishnubhakt, professor of law at the Texas A&M University. My guest today is Janet Freilich, associate professor of law at the Fordham University School of Law and visiting this semester at the Boston University School of Law. We'll be discussing her new article, Matching and Digging, Evidentiary Analysis at the Patent Office. Janet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Great. So let's uh, let's begin with what I find most remarkable about this paper. Uh, I think by this point, the the literature on patent quality and on the types of errors that we're likely to see in patent examination is pretty extensive. And what you do here is explain how we've been focusing, uh, what we've been focusing on in that literature is only one side uh, of a two-sided problem. And I think the result is a really compelling and valuable contribution. Uh, and that's this idea of tasks that require matching versus tasks that require digging. So could I ask you please to start with just a simple overview of that distinction when it comes to evidentiary analysis? Sure. So examiners at the patent office look at a lot of evidence as they are processing various requirements for patentability. And my thesis here is that when they process evidence, there are two different things that they are doing, or at least could be doing. So number one, they can be looking for evidence. I call this matching because essentially they are looking for evidence that matches certain questions that they're asking. And then number two, once they've found matching evidence, they can be looking at whether that evidence is good quality, whether that evidence is correct, which I call digging, digging into the quality of mm -hmm. evidence. And the, the big picture thesis of, um, of this project is that examiners are pretty good. They make some mistakes, but they're pretty good at looking for whether a piece of particular piece of information exists. But they really don't do very much work at all in asking, is that piece of information correct? Okay, so asking if that piece of information is correct, the digging piece, um, there are analogs in the scientific community to this task of, of digging, obviously. Um, for example, peer review um, in, uh, in you know, na the natural sciences, physical sciences, etc., uh, frequently looks not only at, is this work novel? Is this work sort of adding to the store of knowledge that, uh, that we already had and isn't just replicating something? But is it of good quality? So is the idea that um, examiners could be but are not doing something akin to uh, peer review uh, in, in patent examination, and that's a different kind of problem than merely uh, seeing if this is a novel contribution? Well, so there's a, there's a couple layers to the answer that I'll give you. So first of all, um, Yes, patent examiners uh, patent examiners do not do something like peer review. And what I mean by that is patent examiners will look at the patented invention and they will they're not going to scrutinize the the data. They're not going to look at it in detail and say does this seem to make sense? Is this likely to work the way that a peer reviewer might? Uh patent examiners don't necessarily have the capability to do that. And I'm not arguing that they should. But what I am trying to highlight in this article is simply that at the patent office, there just isn't really any scrutiny at all about whether an invention works. 
Okay, so there's scrutiny of the invention, scrutiny of the application, and so digging could be taking place with respect to what's presented in the in the specification of the patent application. And then there's also digging that could be but is not taking place with respect to the prior art, the, the store of information that we already have access to. And so there are digging problems on, on both sides. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. So I'll unpack that because there are two different types of analyses that examiners do that you're alluding to. So number one, examiners will ask, is this invention novel and non-obvious? And to do that, examiners will search the, the prior art, search the body of all previously existing information, publicly disclosed information to see if anybody's invented this before. And if it turns out somebody has invented it before, then no patent for you. The examiner will reject the patent. So in this particular context, when an examiner goes and looks at the prior art to see if the invention has been disclosed before, the examiner will look for the invention. So this is what I call matching, look for that prior art disclosure. And then the examiner could, but doesn't, scrutinize that prior art disclosure and say, is it, is it actually reasonable? Is it correct? Is, this, is it likely that whoever was talking about this invention in the prior art was actually able to make it? Or is this prior art just science fiction? Is it just somebody making noise about what the world could look like? So that's one way in which examiners are looking for information in the prior art. They're, they're matching, but they're not looking into, they're not digging into the quality of information in the prior art. When examiners find a matching statement in the prior art, they just accept it as true. So the other half of what examiners do is looking for information in the specification of the patent. So they've got a patent application in front of them and they need to figure out, is this patent application useful? Is it what we call, what we say, enabled? So um, does it have enough information to teach other people in the field how to make and use the invention? And does it show that the inventor was actually in possession of the invention? So in order to do that, the examiner has to read the information in the patent and uh, figure out what has been, what is the inventor saying about about their own um, invention? And is this invention actually useful? And is it actually enabled? And the way that examiners do this, and actually they're pretty explicit about the way that they do it, is they look for some statement of utility. So somewhere in the patent application, there should be a sentence that says, the invention is really good for X and Y, whatever it actually does. And if the examiner finds that sort of statement, the examiner says, okay, great, there's a statement of utility. And the examiner doesn't go take the second step and doesn't ask, is that statement of utility correct? which is what I mean by this. they look for a matching statement of utility, but they are not digging into the quality of that statement. Okay. Okay. So um, now with that distinction uh, in hand, you're applying this framework, obviously, to an agency, uh, the USPTO, that at least historically was quite insulated uh, and at times even inscrutable. So let's now turn to how that agency's operations Uh, in examining patents, map onto this distinction. You've obviously given us a great introduction to that already, um, but let's speak a little bit more in detail about the process of examination and the sort of decision points at which the application, or excuse me, the applicant has the ability to 
provide information. The examiner has the opportunity to require information. And then once having received it, the examiner has the opportunity to either match or dig um, and sort of, you know, do with it what they're going to. So um, where is it you think that uh, the the digging problem, because it is digging that's, you know, much less frequently done. Uh, what are the decision points in examination where digging could be doing more work but is not? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in in a perfect world, and I want to be clear that I'm not recommending, we don't live in this world, and I'm not recommending this as a solution, but in a perfect world, uh, an examiner would get a patent application and would say, okay, the ap- the applicant says that you combine X and Y and you get this result. And then the examiner would go into their lab and they would re- uh, they would try to replicate that result. And they would see if the instructions that the applicant discloses actually produce the invention. And if the invention actually does what the applicant says that it does. That's not the way the patent office works, and it's not the way the patent office should work. There, as far as I know, are no labs uh, in the patent office, and they have a very limited ability to actually do any sort of um, replication work, and it would be really expensive to set up a system like that. So it's not the way to go. But in theory, in theory, uh, an examiner could be really deeply digging into whether the applicant statements are correct by actually trying to test them. Um, that's not, that's not possible. Examiners do have some capability to ask applicants for a little bit of extra evidence. They can, if they're, if they're particularly skeptical and occasionally, uh, there'll be an application that comes in that's, um, especially incredible. There are a lot of applications, for example, directed to things that are just impossible, like perpetual motion machines and examiners, uh, will reject those and say, well, this looks impossible, but hey, if you can provide some evidence that you actually did it, then I'll consider this further. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so examiners are able to, are, do have the power to ask for more evidence, at which point the applicant can provide more evidence. As a practical matter, it's not terribly common for examiners to ask for more evidence. I don't know exactly, I, I don't have numbers for how often it happens, but my sense is it doesn't happen very often. And the norm uh, is for examiners just to accept what the applicant uh, purports the invention to do without a huge amount of scrutiny about whether that's true. Okay. Okay. So examiners do matching somewhat well. They do digging very infrequently, and it's a matter of resource constraints and just institutional you know, capacity uh, that, that sort of limits them in this way. Um, so with those two starting points, now we've gotten a sense of the analytical framework, uh, that you're using and also some sense of the institutional framework that you're studying. Um, so in the paper, what comes next, um, and, and for me was really one of the fun parts of this paper, um, is what the patent quality literature spends so much time evaluating, which is different kinds of errors that can arise in examination. So, We've now learned a little bit about matching versus digging. How do you distinguish um, type one and type two matching errors from type one and type two digging errors uh, in the USPTO? What do those look like? Mm-hmm. Sure. So there's a lot of there's a huge literature on um, on errors at the PTO. Huge literature, and I, I think it's fairly uncontroversial that the PTO does make 
a lot of errors, although there's some controversy over what the harm is and whether we should fix them or how we should fix them. Um, but most scholars agree that there are a lot of errors that are happening. The literature on examiner errors, it tends to be about a very particular kind of error. And that kind of error, it's the kind of error that happens when a patent gets granted, even though the invention claimed in that patent is actually not novel or it's obvious. So in other words, these patents are erroneously granted, even though they they disclose something we already knew about. And that, in my framework, is a matching error. Because what happens when those errors occur, when an examiner has an application in front of, uh, you know, on his or her desk and looks for the invention in the prior art, says, has somebody else already invented this and doesn't find anything, does not find a match. And so grants the patent. But the examiner made a mistake in our hypo here because there is a match out there. The examiner grants the patent anyway. It's an erroneous grant and it's a matching error because there was a match. The examiner just didn't find it. What I talk about in this paper is a whole different kind of error, which is digging errors, where the examiner found matching information, found, say, a statement of utility, or found a statement in the prior art, but the statement the examiner found was wrong, was incorrect, and the examiner didn't realize that, and so the examiner made the wrong decision based on that information. So that can take Two, two, um, that can go two different ways. You're talking about type one and type two errors. And frankly, I can never remember which one is type one and which one is type two. So I'll just, uh, I'll just go through them. Um, so the first type of error is where an examiner is searching for the prior, searching the prior art for some statement of pre- previous statement of the invention, finds it, and then rejects the application and says, this is not novel. So no patent for you. But in fact, that statement in the prior art was wrong. Let's say that statement was dreamed up by somebody who couldn't actually make it, and that's incorrect as a matter of patent law because uh, examiners can only reject, um, only make novelty rejections if the prior art uh, is enabled. And so the the quality of the information in the prior art was poor, but the examiner believed it anyway, and it made an erroneous rejection. The second type of error that an examiner can make in my framework is an erroneous grant. And in this particular context, examiners, uh, the examiner, let's say, finds a statement of utility in the patent application and says, great, there's a statement of utility. Now I can grant the patent. But that statement of utility in reality is wrong. And in fact, this invention is not useful, or at least not in the terms the inventor is putting it. And so that patent should never have been granted. So that's an erroneous grant. That in, in this kind of way, um, digging errors can lead both to erroneous rejection and to erroneous grant of patents. Okay, so we've got the sort of erroneous rejection, erroneous grant dichotomy as to digging errors. Um, with respect to matching errors, you know, finding a piece of prior art and misapplying it, you characterize that as the um, the digging error where the examiner just took the non-enabled prior art at face value and shouldn't have done so. And that led to an erroneous rejection. Um, But it seems to me that that might, in uh, a similar but not identical case, also be a potential matching error, right? So a false negative um, in that situation would be the examiner rejects, erroneously rejects the application 
because they thought they found something. They thought they did their matching task correctly, but they in fact did their matching task incorrectly. Is it possible in your framework that a piece of prior art constitutes not just a digging error that leads to an erroneous grant, but also potentially a matching error because it's not actually uh, a correct match when you get down to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a, a way you could look at it. So the matching digging distinction, uh, it's not always exact. And in the paper, I, I actually say, well, I am defining um, this particular type of error. I'm going to call it a digging error. But I do realize you could think about it as a matching error, too, where the examiner finds a piece of prior art and uh, just isn't interpreting it correctly in some way. And so in some sense, that, that is a it's an incorrect match. Um, so yes, you could also look at that as a uh, an incorrect rejection based on a matching error. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So um, as a practical matter, this you know this dichotomy um, may have some some fuzziness at the at the boundaries, but of course the there are going to be lots and lots of clear cases, and and the low hanging fruit certainly shouldn't be ignored. Um, so. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how those errors play out uh, downstream. Now we've gotten, uh, you know, uh, some grants that are wrongfully granted uh, versus some grants that are good. We've gotten some rejections that are erroneously made versus some rejections that are good. Um, so of the the patents that are wrongfully denied versus the patents uh, that are wrongfully uh, granted, what are the consequences that we need to worry about that makes this matching digging uh, analysis useful in the sort of broader systemic sense? Mm -hmm. So I'll start off with erroneous rejection because this one is a little bit simpler. So here there is a patent was rejected because it was anticipated because it's not novel, but in fact it actually is novel. And so that that's an erroneous um, rejection. So the consequence here is that the patent applicant gets uh, gets an office action from the patent office that says, sorry, we've rejected your patent for the following reasons. These types of errors, in theory, that could be quite harmful because in theory, we could be rejecting patents that should have been granted. And that means we're perhaps the purpose of the patent system is to incentivize innovation. If we reject patents that should have been granted, maybe we're not incentivizing innovation properly. Maybe we're providing too little of an incentive. Uh, but the reason I say I'm not terribly worried about this kind of error is because once the rejection has happened, the applicant has a chance to respond. So the applicant has an opportunity to say, examiner, I think you've made an error. And this is the error that I think you've made. An applicant uh, is, of course, highly motivated to point out that kind of error. Uh, An applicant can go look at the prior art themselves. It's, It's public, it's there, and can make their own determination. Applicants presumably know quite a bit about the field of the invention, and the applicant can make their own determination about whether that was a correct rejection or not. If the applicant thinks the rejection was not correct, they can argue with the examiner about it. And um, I, I've seen some examples of cases where this has happened, and the applicant can the applicant often succeeds in convincing the examiner that the rejection was erroneous, and the examiner then withdraws the rejection, and ultimately uh, the application can get granted. So these sorts of errors, erroneous rejections, they happen, but they can be fixed. The type of error I'm a lot more concerned about is erroneous grant, because those are a lot harder to fix. So erroneous grant happens when an application that has incorrect information, maybe an incorrect statement of utility, 
or an incorrect description of how the invention works uh, or is used gets granted. And it shouldn't have gotten granted because those uh, descriptions were actually wrong, but it gets granted anyway because uh, the examiner believes those descriptions. Once it gets granted, that patent is there in the world, and third parties can challenge the patent uh, in litigation under certain circumstances, assuming they have standing to do so. But litigation is long, and litigation is expensive, and litigation is nobody's first choice of things to do. So in practice, these patents, these erroneously granted patents, might deter other people from innovating in the area covered by the patent. And that is, that's my major concern with this sort of error. So the problem of follow-on innovation, um, and particularly incremental innovation in uh, in more integrated fields like uh, high technology, computing, and so forth, um, the erroneous grant creates a variety of costs um, upon third parties, not just the, the people who are most likely to be uh, sued. Um, let me ask you just as a, a sort of uh, brief aside, what, uh, uh, to what extent do you think the establishment over the last decade of uh, administrative revocation through, through the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, inter partes review, these kinds of proceedings, um, to what extent do you think that uh, minimizes or at least mitigates the, the problem of erroneous grants? Mm-hmm. So inter partes, um, inter partes review has, of course, been made had a huge impact on uh, on on the patent world, and was at least in part designed to address this problem of erroneous grant. The problem with inter partes review with with IPR proceedings is that there is a limited number of situations, limited number of arguments you can make as part of an IPR proceeding, and. In particular, you're limited to making arguments about novelty and non-obviousness. You can't make an argument about you can't you can't make an argument that a patent was incorrectly granted for lack of utility or uh, lack of enablement or lack of written description. Mm-hmm. And the those uh, those so there are only certain types of erroneous grant that can be addressed in IPR. The types of erroneous grant that can be addressed: lack of novelty and um, and obviousness are the result of what I call matching errors. The types of erroneous grant that cannot be addressed in IPR are the types of grants that result from what I call digging errors. So I think that the proceedings are are good. I think they help, um, but they are not designed to address this particular problem. Okay. All right. So that, that makes sense to me. I think the, um, the, the, the particular... Uh, kinds of evidence too. The prior art uh, may also play a role uh, in this, as you as you point out in the paper. Um, you know, there's a uh, sort of a, a way of thinking about our patent examination process, uh, not as substantive examination all the way through, but as what you call quasi registration. Um, so, what uh, can you can you say a bit about what you mean by uh, by the patent system being a quasi registration system and what effects that might have? On, on ex post error correction? Sure. So we call our system a patent examination system, and we call the people who, who look at patents, we say they're patent examiners, they examine patents. We use this word examine a lot. When I, when I talk to people who aren't lawyers, don't know a lot about the patent system, and I say, 
there's a patent examination system. There are examiners who, who examine patents. It gives the impression that the examiners are doing a really in-depth well, examination, for lack of a better word, of the patents. And I, I don't think that's quite the right impression because it seems to me that at least for certain parts of the process, what examiners are doing looks a lot more like a registration system than an examination system. Um, what I mean by that is for certain requirements of patentability, so utility, for example, uh, examiners, I don't think, I think they're not doing a deep dive into whether the utility is properly disclosed in the patent. Instead, I think examiners are looking for a statement of utility and checking checking that off the list, saying, yep, that statement is there. And that to me looks a lot more like a registration system because in a registration system, the administrative body just looks to make sure all the parts are there, but they don't look in depth or scrutinize those parts and say, well, or is, is it correct? They're just saying, do you have all the components? And that in many ways is, is what patent examiners are doing. They are just saying, are all the components of a patent there? Do we have a statement of utility? Do we have a statement of enablement of how to make and use every part of the invention? Just checking off those boxes rather than going more in depth. So it looks a lot more like registration. And what that means is we should just expect a lot more patents to get through the process that uh, would not necessarily survive a more rigorous examination process. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a registration process. There are absolutely pros and cons to both uh, a registration and an examination process, or what we really have, which is kind of in between a, a quasi-registration process. Um, but it is important to recognize what the system is actually doing, is actually capable of, and what it's not capable of, because the less the less in-depth examination ha- happens at the patent office stage, the more patents are going to get through that maybe don't quite meet the requirements for patentability. And so the more work needs to be done in the back end to address those patents. So that's that's an interesting sort of characterization of how particularly the utility requirement that you've used as an example um, plays out, right? Because uh, as, as we've both uh, studied in, in patent law and, and have taught, um, the utility requirement historically in U.S. law has been quite weak uh, by design. And it goes all the way back to, to Lowell versus Lewis and this idea that, well, it's not the job of the patent office to uh, to figure out whether this is going to be better than everything else in the in the marketplace. If it isn't all that great, the market will take care of it. And if it's not particularly useful or more useful, then it will sl- uh, you know sink slowly into disuse and disrepute and so forth. But what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that even at that task, independently of whether the utility bar is very rigorous or not very rigorous at all, simply looking for the statement of utility and not doing any digging at all might lead examiners to fail even a low utility bar, let alone uh, a much higher, more stringent utility bar. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that is fair to say. And uh, it's uh, I'm using utility as an example because it's uh, it's fairly easy to talk about. But it, what I'm saying also applies to enablement and written description. And uh, enablement is... Uh, 
I don't think at least not designed to be a low bar. It may operate as a low bar in practice, but uh, it's it not not designed that way. And and yet the same, well, the same failures happen with both utility enablement and written description as well, where the examiner is checking off boxes, just looking for, are there statements here? Rather than scrutinizing the quality of those statements, and then we have patents getting through that uh, may not may not satisfy those requirements. I also wanted to uh, to add one thing based on what you were you were saying about this idea that well the market will sort this all out if if this patent has no value the market will just it won't harm anyone because there won't be there's no point if you have a monopoly on something that's not valuable well it doesn't really matter. Uh, that is, I get that point a lot, and it's certainly an intuitive way of thinking about some of these patents. For example, if I were to get a patent granted on a perpetual motion machine, that wouldn't really hurt anybody because you can't make perpetual motion machines. So my ability to prevent other people from making them is not doesn't have any practical effect. Uh, the problem is that patent claims are broader than the underlying data that supports them. So if I have a patent application that says um, drug X can cure cancer, and I'm completely wrong about that, but nobody realizes I'm wrong, and so my, my application gets granted. The claim on that patent is probably going to be, I claim drug X, period. And that gives me a monopoly over anything you do with drug X, curing cancer or otherwise. And so let's say it turns out drug X is really good at, it's a really good soap. And now that we're in the COVID area, everyone wants soap. And this turns out to be really, really valuable. My patent claim covers that, that use, covers use of drug X as soap, even though my underlying data were totally wrong. And I never thought about that application. So even patents where the underlying information is wrong, they can still cover operable technology and that can still create problems. Right. Although in that situation, the utility for which the patent is now being redirected at the market um, is a real utility, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a sort of fortuitous coincidence that the, that the patent owner happened to patent something um, that did something totally different. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that's not necessarily um, the examiner's fault. The fact that patents can be used for new uses, uh, you know, if we if we're sort of considering that a problem, that's more of a problem with the the rules that are imposed from without on the patent examination system uh, altogether. Isn't mm. that right? Oh, I, I absolutely agree. It's not the examiner's fault here. Um, it's just to illustrate that that. Uh, an erroneous, erroneous grant can create problems beyond the immediate wrong information in the patent. Got it. Okay. Well, that, that certainly does make sense. Um, now, you mentioned uh, a few moments ago that this quasi-registration system, you know, the, the sort of status quo as we have it, um, doesn't just have costs. It has benefits as well. And in fact, you point to some of those benefits um, in the paper uh, what what are some of those uh, benefits that you know the current state of affairs offers us uh, from from patent examination? Well, for one, it's cheap. It's cheap. It's fast. It's easy. And relatively speaking, because the the examination system is 
it's not that cheap and it's not that fast and it's not that easy, but it's absolutely cheaper and faster and easier than thoroughly reviewing every piece of information in the patent document. If mm-hmm. we had to build labs to and you know, send the examiners off to labs to try to replicate the experiments, we might get really good quality information, but it would be prohibitively expensive and just wouldn't work. So this is a this is a cheaper system and that might be fine. Uh, it's it's hard to know exactly what the cost of these errors are. It may be that I speculate there there is some cost to the errors, but I don't know if the cost of these errors outweighs the cost of fixing them at the at the level of the PTO. Um, and a second advantage is that a system of matching it's very predictable. Um, this registration system, you know exactly what the examiner is doing. Another examiner, well, examiners are not entirely consistent, um, but it's probably more consistent and more predictable and more easy to standardize than a system where we ask examiners to dig into the quality of information. Hmm. Okay, so cost is one benefit and standardizability is another. Um, What about the sort of availability of information itself, right? The, uh, as you pointed out, for erroneous rejections, the applicant has the best information and can come back and say, hey, hold on, you got this wrong. But of course, the applicant doesn't have the incentive uh, to do that when they are wrongfully granted a patent. They just say thank you and and leave. Um, So what about the, um, the sort of Information asymmetry, I guess, would be the term, um, and and how that affects the the status quo. Is that a benefit that we can uh, draw out of the current system uh, in terms of who's best positioned to provide relevant information and who's best 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 positioned to um, to apply it? Mm-hmm. One of the challenges of digging errors is this information asymmetry problem, and the information asymmetry problem is that. The applicant knows something, at least, about the quality of the information that they are providing to the patent office. Um, They know how much evidence is underlying that information. They know if they're outright lying. I I think that's hopefully not usually the case, but the applicant knows how speculative some of these statements are. Um, The examiner does not know that, and the public doesn't know that. So there's an information asymmetry. This information asymmetry is not a problem or not as much of a problem when it comes to matching, because for matching, examiners are just looking for publicly available information that the applicant can see, that the public can see, that the examiner can see. When it comes to asking whether that information is correct, if the information in question is supplied by the applicant, the applicant just knows a lot more about about the information. And so I I do think this becomes a problem because it's really hard for third parties to know whether some of these patents were erroneously granted or not, because the third party just doesn't know whether certain statements in the patent are correct or not, and in practice doesn't have a good way to test them. So going back to your question about what's actually happening at the patent office, one possible reform, although this also has disadvantages, is asking the applicant to provide more information, to give the examiner a little bit more detail about what what sort of evidence um, is, is underlying some of the statements 
that are in the patent, which would help equalize the information asymmetry at least a little bit. Okay, so finally, there's the normative prescription. Um, You suggest three pretty important reforms based on your analysis. Uh, The first, and I think most straightforward, is now that we've identified these errors, particularly these digging errors, we should try to fix them. And uh, although we can't necessarily have you know, peer review all the way through, uh, perhaps uh, improve the quality of digging and the quality of that kind of evidentiary analysis in patent examination itself. Um, a second is treating patent litigation and its legal rules differently from the legal rules that govern prosecution when it comes to evaluating evidence. Uh, and still another is embracing the use of artificial intelligence uh, in USPTO examination, which is something that the agency has already taken some important steps uh, towards. So how does each of those reforms follow from your critique? Mm-hmm. So the first set of reforms, which is try to get the applicant to disclose or people associated with the applicant to disclose a little bit more information at the PTO. The idea here is help the examiner out. Examiners just can't do this on their own. There's no way to do it. And when I say examiners don't dig into the veracity of statements, that's not a criticism of examiners because there just is not a good way for for examiners to do this. But applicants can provide more information and uh, institutions associated with the applicants can do a little bit more policing of the quality of information in the patent document. And I provide a couple of examples of ways to do that, but the the general theme is... um, get a little bit more information elicited at the application stage. So, so to allow examiners uh, to make something of a more informed decision about whether the information in patents is correct. On the litigation side, the key is to understand that prosecution and litigation are just doing very different things. The Many of the standards in uh, in pro- examination and litigation are similar, particularly when it comes to the validity of the patent. And it's not clear to me that that makes a lot of sense because these seem to be fundamentally different processes. The the prosecution, the examination process, to me, uh, seems more like a registration process, whereas in litigation, the litigants can and do argue about whether certain pieces of information are correct. So litigation is a much deeper dive. And one once uh, policy reform that comes out of that is at the moment, uh, granted patents are, are given a presumption of validity. We assume they're valid and you have to overcome that in litigation if you want to, to prove otherwise. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me to have that presumption of validity. I think it should be maybe a presumption that matching was done, but not a presumption that information in patents is correct. I'm not the only one to suggest getting rid of the presumption of validity that's that's made an appearance in a lot of um, a lot of other articles, and then finally on the artificial intelligence point, uh, yes, the patent office is already working on um, working on automating some of these processes and and already does some of this. Uh, but if if you conceptualize the patent examination process as a series of information matching steps, where the examiner takes a piece of information from the patent and looks for its match somewhere else, that's the sort of thing computers are pretty good at. And that might free up some examiner time for uh, maybe more in-depth digging. So that is, uh, that's something else that comes out of this proposal. 
Okay. Okay. So the the first and third, it seems to me, have uh, they sort of go hand in hand. They have a lot in common. Uh, but let's dig in a little more into the prosecution litigation uh, interface because uh, you're right, of course, that by the time you're in litigation, there's going to be a lot of digging. The the kind of evidentiary analysis associated with you know sort of interrogating the quality of evidence is uh, front and center in in an adversarial dispute uh, like litigation. Whereas uh, the ex parte nature of, uh, of patent examination uh, just creates a very different set of, of incentives and not necessarily optimal uh, incentives for information exchange. Um, but of course, the reason for that, or at least one reason for that, is by the time we get to litigation, we have answered at least two questions about the dispute. One is that there's enough uncertainty that we sort of need to fight about this and that there's enough value at stake that it's sort of worth it for us uh, to fight about this. So this sounds like a uh, a sort of variation on the rational ignorance uh, thesis that uh, Mark Lemley put forward uh, a, a couple of uh, decades ago. So what's your view about how um, the, the matching digging distinction adds to the rational ignorance argument? The rational ignorance um, argument is that we shouldn't spend too much time and effort and, and money at the patent office stage because most of those patents are really going nowhere and no one's ever going to pay any attention to them anyway. Um, and litigation is where we can really, well, litigation sort of serves as the backstop to uh, to deal with some of the the, the erroneously granted patents. And I think that makes sense in the context of, of what I'm saying as well, that we shouldn't be working really hard at the prosecution stage to get this 100% right. I think we can get it a little bit more right, but certainly not. We certainly don't need to be trying to get it 100% right. Um, the the distinction, this, this prosecution litigation distinction um, that comes out of, of my work, really, I'm just trying to emphasize that prosecution and litigation are doing really different things. And what you said about very different types of patents, very different types of disputes, that that's all absolutely right. And that plays into it. Litigation is something completely different from prosecution. And litigation is evaluating evidence in ways that is different, that they're different from what happens in prosecution. Litigation. Uh, does not really have a matching digging dichotomy the way that prosecution does in the sense that litigation does both. And the the take-home message, message there is just that we ought to think carefully about doctrines we apply in litigation that are carried over from prosecution, because it's not at all clear to me that litigation should defer to prosecution in any way, either by granting a presumption of validity or by copying its doctrines, simply because litigation is doing something very different. Okay. Okay. So to the extent that uh, you, I mean, it seems to me that to the extent you want to um, free up examiners to do better digging, um, while their matching tasks may continue apace or their matching tasks might be uh, offloaded to some extent onto uh, AI processes uh, or, or machine learning processes, um, it, that does seem to invest more on the ex ante examination side, um, uh, and and at least to that extent departs a little bit from from the rational ignorance thesis. Because 
you're saying it is worth the candle at least a little bit to keep improving our examination and not just saying we should deal with all of this at the litigation side while you know the distinction between prosecution and litigation does merit reconsideration of what we do in litigation as well um so yeah that's right um so i do think that we can do a little bit better on the prosecution side i don't think we should just say okay well this is a status quo we will just deal with everything on the litigation end um, but it's a matter of how much effort we should put into prosecution. I, I don't have a, an exact answer there, um, but I think that we should put a little bit more effort into prosecution. I think we can do a little bit better on the prosecution side. And, and some of the solutions that I, I try to suggest are relatively low cost ways of making those improvements. Where I agree with the rational ignorance uh, idea is I don't think we should try to be perfect at at prosecution. Uh, We shouldn't try to get these errors down to zero. Where exactly the right balance is between the status, what we have right now and bringing the errors down to zero, it's hard to say. I think we should make some improvement, but not a complete improvement. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Janet, thanks very much. I want to sort of uh, tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast uh, and discussing your paper. I learned a lot, and uh, and I know our our listeners did too. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun to be here and be able to chat about the paper with you. So thanks. Very welcome. So uh, for those interested, this uh, article is forthcoming in the Fordham Law Review. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, until next time, Janet, thanks again and take care. Thank you.